Good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Phil Oster. Okay, that's Oster as in poster, definitely not Oster as in imposter. All right? I'm the real deal. Okay. Um, we've been walking our way through the book of Ecclesiastes over the last month or so, and uh, what's become pretty obvious is it's a big, bit of a perplexing book. Um, it's a book which rattles our cage and it unsettles us. There's some uh, similar themes in the book of Job um, that it traverses, things like um, suffering and despair and the meaning of it all, this side of the fall. I think the reason we struggle, at least the reason I struggle a lot, is that I really prefer a Proverbs kind of life, you know, um, where there is cause and there is effect and there is certainty in the middle. If I do this, I'll get that. If I don't do this, I won't get that. And that kind of gives me a sense of control um, and a sense that I can control and harness my circumstances and therefore it's going to lead me to a life of peace and a good life and it's going to lead me to a very happy place. But I think I'm seriously deluded because I don't know if you've noticed it at all but life is not really like that at all. So let's pray together and ask God to breathe upon his word today. Heavenly Father, we um, live under the sun and we need you today, Father, to draw back the curtain somewhat so we can see your glory shining through, Father. We need to see you as the purpose for our existence. And to be able to see you, Father, we need you to open the eyes of our heart and give us hearts to receive your grace. So would you do it by the power of your Holy Spirit today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I found this paragraph in one of my Bible handbooks which highlights my and perhaps your dilemma. In Proverbs, we learn that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Most of us like this theology of Proverbs because it presents us with a world that makes sense, a world in which all events have a logical cause a world that runs by tight rules of fair play, and indeed, much of the time, the world is that way. But occasionally, we are slapped in the face with some great incongruity of life, something that is just not fair or just not right, something that contradicts Proverbs. A two-year-old child of godly parents is killed in a car wreck, or the most righteous and giving person we know comes down with terminal cancer. These events rattle our faith and leave us searching futilely for answers that make sense. Why do these things happen? And for many of us, as we hear that, we're reminded of things that have happened in our life that have confronted us. And we too wonder why these things happen. Where is, where is this God of love when this stuff has fallen into our lives? The author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, most probably Solomon, is not a young man. He's a seasoned veteran who has seen a thing or two. And as, as he looks back on life, he realizes that life doesn't always follow a Proverbs pattern. Life often follows a messy, narrow, winding road which brings us confusion and doubt 
and despair and trouble and pain. But even though that's true, what's more true is that all is not lost. For in God's goodness, in his wisdom and in his providence, he's allowed the mess. In fact, he's ordained the mess. He's ordained the mess so that we might come to the end of ourselves and realize that the answer to life, the universe and everything is not actually found in the number 42, nor is it found in a set of instructions that we can have control over, but it's found in the person of the only saviour, Jesus Christ. And that, dear friends, is an indescribable gift. The book of Job teaches us that more important than getting answers to all of life's confusing questions. You might recall the book of Job. Job is a righteous man and God um, withdraws his hand somewhat and allows Satan to have a bit of free reign with him and Job goes through all sorts of stuff that messes with him and the book of Job is largely about this conversation between Job and his friends about what it all means and what the philosophy and theology is and how it all fits together and what the answers are, uh, the reason why he's suffered like he has. But at the end of the book, he doesn't actually get any answers at all. Instead, what he gets is the presence of God. God shows up and that's enough for Job. He sees God, he hears God, he knows God and that is the answer that he had to find. What's infinitely more important than getting answers to our confusion is coming to see and know and to delight in God. And that's where the preacher is ultimately leading us as he guides us through these musings in Ecclesiastes. So turn with me, if you will, to Ecclesiastes 3. And we're going to pick it up in verse 16. Uh, You might remember a couple of weeks ago, um, Pastor Graham I was sharing from Ecclesiastes 3, we were looking at, uh, he left us in a a very happy place. It was a place that we all like to be in. Uh, It was a place where everything is beautiful in its time. Uh, We ought to be joyful and do good. We should eat and drink and take pleasure in our work as God's gift to us. God has been revealed as the sovereign controller whose work endures forever. And I love being in a happy place. I love it when life is just... Oh, full of contentment, there's no troubles, everything seems to be peaceful seas. It doesn't happen all that often. So if all that's true, and it is absolutely true, that God is in charge and that he brings us things in their beautiful time, then what about the injustices in this world? And that's where Solomon's leading us to now. Verse 16, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. We all recognize injustice in the world. We seem to be born with this inherent sense of uh, what justice is. One of the earliest things we learn to cry out as children is, come on, that's not fair. We scream out, and we would have uh, many times where, as parents, we've heard our children 
utter such things. Our sense of justice seems to be ingrained and we cry out when it gets breached. But sadly, our sense of injustice is all too much self-directed, self-focused. We recognize in an instant injustice done towards us, but we're all too slow to recognize it in the life of others and we're even slower to realize that sometimes we may be the cause of injustice ourselves. Well, Solomon is perplexed. If God is control, is in control, why does wickedness seem to prosper? And it reminds me much of Asaph's complaint in Psalm 73 that you may be familiar with. He'd let his gaze fall from the glory and the majesty of God down to the stuff of earth, and it made a mess of him. Let's hear what he's got to say. Psalm 73 from verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are feet are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Can we relate to that? Does it seem that the wicked live the easy life while we're left struggling and battling behind them? Where's the fairness in all of that? I mean, we are the children of God. We, we're the ones that ought to be the head and they're the tail. We're the ones that should be prospering, living the high life with the king's kids. Are we ever tempted to despair with what Asaph says next? All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I'd said, I will speak like that, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And now hear what he says. But when I thought how to understand this, how to understand the fact that the wicked seem to prosper and I don't, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It troubled me deeply. It was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Asaph had let his gaze fall from the glory and majesty of God to the stuff of earth and it so very nearly led to his shipwreck until, until he went to the sanctuary of God and he regained the true perspective. And that's what Solomon also sees as the answer to the perplexing problem of the seeming triumph of evil and the prevalence of injustice in the world. Verse 17, 
I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So Solomon's problem and Asaph's problem and perhaps your problem, certainly my problem, with envy of the wicked comes when we take our eyes off of God, when we fail to see the big picture, when we forget the end game, when we fail to trust him. And we'll only come to our senses when we lift our eyes to the glory and majesty of our sovereign, omnipotent God, who is a God of perfect justice, perfect goodness, and perfect timing. Sometimes we walk through stuff in life and we so desperately need to remember, despite what we see, that God is a God of perfect justice, perfect goodness, and perfect timing. One day, one day he will right every wrong and dispense perfect justice for all that has been done. And you can trust God to do that for you. Some of you have been tremendously misunderstood, abused, oppressed, misrepresented. God will right every wrong. You can trust your cause to him. Now that sounds comforting until we remember that perhaps we're actually not that innocent ourselves. The ultimate question for you and for me is whether we will allow God's justice to fall fairly upon us in terrifying wrath and eternal judgment or whether that justice will fall upon the one that we have come to know and trust as our saviour, the one who took our place and received God's fury and absorbed his wrath in our place. There is a saviour and his name is Jesus and he's the one we all need to run to. So don't get your knickers in a knot when you see the wicked seem to prosper and when it seems like life is unfair, when you see good things happen to those who you reckon don't deserve it. Don't be envious of their lot in life. Lift your eyes to God and trust in his unfailing goodness. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? That was Abraham's rhetorical question when he, he pled on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah before the Lord. He knew that the, God, the judge of all the earth would do right. And we can have absolute confidence that our God is good and he is just. That's what the preacher does. In verse 16, he sees the wickedness of injustice, but in verse 17, he sees the answer as the righteousness and goodness of God. Sometimes God's justice shows itself in our lifetimes. Sometimes it doesn't, but it will come. And for now, for now, life can seem really messy and perplexing but there truly is a time for every matter under heaven, including the day that God has fixed to right every wrong. Now, Pastor Graham gave um, a really good illustration the other week of life as a tapestry. 
and he actually stole my idea without realizing it because he got to preach first. So I've decided he's got the spiritual gift of prophetic plagiarism. You know, when, when you rip off someone else's idea without even seeing it in advance. So it's very clever. Um, he also ripped off one of my C.S. Lewis quotes, but um, I'm sure he'll uh, fix me up with a coffee one of these days. Um, but there's a quote from Douglas Wilson that uh, he writes about life being a tapestry, and he writes this. He says, From the vantage underneath, little is visible but snarls and knots. But above, the beautiful pattern of the work on the loom can be seen. As Solomon has shown, we live our lives under the loom, and everything we see is vanity. So how can we interpret the pattern above? The only possible answer is through faith in a sovereign God. Some of you right now are living, and all you can see are snarls and knots and confusion and despair. And you need to hear God's word today that he is doing something magnificent that you may not see yet, but someday, someday you will. There's a... um, picture of a tapestry here that I found from the internet. Now, if you search on the internet for, like, tapestry above and below, most of the pictures you get, um, when you look below, it kind of looks a lot like the one on top. And I was trying to find some picture that looked nothing like it, so I could could better serve the illustration. And this is the best I could come up with. Um, The backside looks absolutely nothing like the front side. In fact, it may not even be, but someone put it together (laughs) to make the point. So, but for some of you, life at the moment looks like the backside, okay? It's just a mess. There's no definition to it. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. You can't understand why God has allowed stuff into your life. It just doesn't make sense. You've lost your joy. You've lost your sense of purpose. Maybe you've even come to doubt the goodness of God. The book of Ecclesiastes is about acknowledging that we live east of Eden. We live this side of the fall. We live between the now and the not yet. But we have a certain future because our faith is rooted in the sovereign God. At the moment, too often all we see is the mess, the knots, and the confusion of the underside of the tapestry. But God calls us to live by faith and not by sight. Right now we live under the sun, but one day we'll be above the sun when the faith will be made sight and we will glory in the beauty of the tapestry which God has spectacularly woven through every single moment of our lives. The good, the bad, and the downright ugly. And that will be a sight which will lead us to inexhaustible worship and praise of the wisdom and the majesty and the providence and the goodness of our God. The next section of Ecclesiastes 3 points us to our mortality. I was reading the news um, a few weeks back and it had this headline. It said, Rugby Immortal Dies. I don't think he was so immortal after all. 
But the truth is, if you haven't realized it by now, we are all mortal. As the slogan puts it, life, no one gets out of it alive. Unless, of course, you happen to be Enoch or Elijah. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys wins? It kind of sums up the world's philosophy that um, life is all about eating and drinking and being merry and just experiencing the most you can and grab all the stuff you can because this life is all there is. Well, once driving around, I saw another bumper sticker which just made a spectacular point. It said, he who dies with the most toys still dies. <laughs> and it's just a, such a sobering truth. You know, the, the middle bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins, we can laugh at it. It seems like, uh, you know, that's what the mates all do and that's what life's about. But the last one, it just hits you right here. You realize you can't take it with you. This life will end. From dust we came, and to dust we shall return. Death is certain. So the question is then, are we joined to the one who has overcome the grave? The very one who is both the resurrection and the life. There is no question more important, more vital, or more relevant than that. We try to convince ourselves that death is something which happens to other people, especially dead people. And that somehow we're assured of at least an 80-year lifespan. Death seems so far away and in our subconscious we somehow imagine that we'll be able to avoid it. Do you ever do that? Do you ever kind of imagine that death won't come to you It'll, it'll always be someone else. I've had a reminder of this over the past week in the number 52. So 52 is the number of weeks in a year, 52 is the number of cards in a deck, and 52 happens to be, at this moment, the number of years that God has graced me with. And 52, if you've been reading the news, was the age that an illustrious cricketer also was given and God has ended his days at 52 suddenly without notice unexpectedly if you're reading the newspaper and the advertiser over the last week you might have seen a small article on it and then late this last week there was a Victorian senator in the federal parliament who suddenly died heart attack on the way between meetings aged 52 and suddenly I'm confronted a little more close with it, closely with the reality of death and that I can't control the number of my days. I can't control whether or not I have an 80-year lifespan and God has never promised me that he'll give me an 80-year lifespan. God has promised that he'll always be with me. God has promised that he'll take away the sting of death for me if I put my trust in what Christ achieved for me in his life and death and resurrection. God has promised that he'll take me home to be with him and that I won't die a single moment before the day he's ordained for me. But he hasn't guaranteed an 80-year lifespan for me. Death is a consequence of our sin. 
But what happens to us beyond the grave is dependent upon whom we have trusted in this life. What have you trusted in this life? Have you trusted in yourself, your efforts, your accumulations, your successes, your superannuation, your health, all of your trips to the gym, your, your health, all the pills that you've got from the health store to, to keep you living longer, your good works, your niceness, what have you trusted in this life? Or have you come to the end of yourself and found yourself desperately wanting, desperately in need of the rescue from the only saviour that there is? Have you realised that you have no hope beyond the grave apart from the, the only one who overcame the grave? Hebrews 2 tells us that one central reason that Jesus came and died was that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now I think all of us know more or less what it feels like to have this bondage to the fear of death. We don't talk about death much. It makes us very uncomfortable. Knowing Jesus enables us to pass from death to life and life eternal. Knowing Jesus takes the sting of death away for us. So putting these verses in Ecclesiastes together, God does allow wickedness and injustice and trouble to prevail in order to test us that we might discover that if left to ourselves, we are nothing more than brute beasts. God delays his judgment in order to bring us to the end of ourselves and provide us with opportunities of repentance. I mean, if your life was smooth and bountiful and prosperous and healthy and, and nice and happy all of the time, why would you ever need to look beyond yourself? Don't underestimate the grace that God gives you in your troubles. It's the grace that is designed to set you free from yourself so that you might find true and eternal satisfaction in only Christ. One of my favorite quotes is from one of the early church fathers, Augustine. And he said this, he said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. This, this is a statement that has so helped me. God has used it so much in my life to help me deal with the stuff of life. The whole reason I exist is God has made me for himself. And so my life has been this, this wrestle and there's, there's all sorts of stuff and mess that I've gone through in my life and you do in your life. And the whole point of it is to bring us finally to see that life is not about us with God helping us a little bit. Life is about God and us falling into his plan and delighting in his person, in his goodness. 
There's a lot of wisdom there. Thank God he rattles our cage and unsettles us with injustice, oppression, and trouble. He's extending to us what Paul Tripp calls uncomfortable grace so that we might find ultimate reality in only him. God doesn't just give us what we think are nice things. He gives us uncomfortable grace because he knows what's best for us. The preacher closes out chapter 3 with this. He says, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So we don't know what the future will bring, but the way forward for us is not by being paralyzed by fear, but by trusting ourselves to God, by rejoicing in him, and by remaining faithful to what he's called us to do. Okay, chapter 4. If you've got the ESV there, the heading is Evil Under the Sun. And I think Agatha Christie might have read that at some stage because it was the title of one of her acclaimed mystery novels from 1941. So let's pick it up at verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So Solomon has returned to this recurring, perplexing problem of the presence and existence of evil, this time in the form of oppression. Oppression is a despicable evil that denies the God-given rights of the oppressed and sees them as object, as objects to obtain one's end goals, be it pleasure or, or riches or comfort. When we think of oppression, often we think of um, South American drug lords or owners of brothels or orchestrators of sex trafficking or managers of sweatshops we might think of um, abusive alcoholic fathers. We might think of um, political regimes responsible for human genocide, all of these oppressors. It's a wicked evil, and indeed, we should work as Christians to overcome them and to help the oppressed. But perhaps, maybe, oppression comes even a little closer to home, maybe even residing in the hearts of you and me. Do you ever exploit or manipulate your children or your spouse or a friend or a work colleague or anyone in subtle yet effective ways in order to push your own agenda and maximize your comfort? Do we abuse the power and authority within the tiny sphere that God's given us for our ends rather than God's glory? Do we withhold our hand from someone in need when it's within our power to offer assistance? Do we turn a blind eye to widows, orphans, the sick, the imprisoned, the elderly? It's something that's worth thinking about because some of these big sins like you know, murder, we think, oh, we're not a murderer, that's, that's a terrible sin. But the roots of murder 
often reside right here in our hearts. And sure, we, we may not be an oppressor in this big definition sense of it, but do the roots of oppression, are they still harboured somewhere in our hearts? The preacher is appalled by the oppression he sees in the world. But perhaps his deepest grievance is that not so much that oppression exists, but that no one is there to comfort the oppressed. In stark contrast to this, the Bible reveals that Jesus is the friend of the oppressed. He fought injustice and oppression with righteous indignation, calling the Pharisees to account and overturning the tables of the extortioners in the temple. And in Matthew 9, we see this beautiful picture. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What a spectacular portrayal of our saviour, the great shepherd of our souls. He's the God who fights for you. He's your refuge. He's your defender. He's your redeemer. And you can rest in his grace. And beyond that, what a privilege we have as Christians not just to receive of his grace, but to be agents of his grace to those around about us. We can be used by God as his hands and feet to fight oppression, to be a good Samaritan, to help someone struggling, to visit the lonely, to stand up for the rights of the unborn, to care for the elderly, to be not just a hearer of the word, not even just a lover of the word, but a doer of the word. That's what our lives should be about. Meanwhile, Solomon, he's a very busy man. He sees even more. Sometimes you wish you'd just stop. I've, I've seen enough. I've dealt with enough. Thank you. But he just keeps coming up with more. Verse 4, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and is a striving after the wind. The fool holds his, folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. You know what a striving after the wind reminds me of? It reminds me of the times in my life where I have tried to pick up a wet tomato seed on a saucer with my thumb and forefinger. Okay, it's the definition of a nightmare. If you've never experienced this, you need to try it when you get home. Try picking up a wet tomato seed. That is truly a vanity. It's like a, trying to grasp hold of the wind. It is impossible. And that is the point that Solomon is making. So he's saying a few things here. Firstly, he says, envy is a terrible taskmaster. You can never keep up with the Joneses. It's like the parable of the workers in the vineyard, uh, the, the parable Jesus told about the workers in the vineyard that came some early in the morning and they were told, you work for me today and I'll give you a denarius. And they were really happy. They had somewhere to work. They had a good taskmaster. They, had, um, uh, they could earn an honest living. They were happy until they took their eyes off themselves and God and their work 
and they saw what the others were getting. And that messed them up. And there's nothing that muddies my heart more quickly than envy. You know, I, God gives me a job. I step into my job. I'm so thankful God's given me a job. I love the work I do. He's given me enough to provide, pay for all my bills. And, and, and then I happen to see the, the, uh, the payroll list when I'm improving the banking. And I, I get to see what a few others are earning. It's like, hang on a sec. They do this. And they get paid that. And all of a sudden, what's happened? I'm messed up in my heart. And I'm envious and I'm dissatisfied and I'm discontent and I'm not happy in God anymore I scroll through Facebook quickly and I see all the beautiful perfect trouble free lives of my friends why do they get to live like that you know I enjoy a, a, a small family holiday up in the Flinders Ranges and then I see this magnificent cruise they've taken in the South Pacific or you know, a, a delightful lunch in the vineyards in southern France and suddenly I'm not happy anymore, I'm not satisfied. I've, I've, got, to, I've got to attain that. Otherwise, what, what's the point of my life? It's just been worthless. Don't let envy take hold of your heart. Desperately trying to keep up with others is a vanity and a striving after the wind. Don't let envy motivate your work. Instead, let joy in God be the thing that floats your boat. Secondly, at the other end of the spectrum, don't choose not to work. Laziness in the life of a sluggard is something the Bible condemns, especially in the book of Proverbs. It's a path that leads to shame and dishonor and poverty. And in first, sorry, Second Thessalonians, Paul commands that if anyone is not willing to work, then let them not eat. It's a pretty simple remedy for laziness. Thirdly, rather than being envious or lazy, Paul, sorry, Solomon calls us to live a contented life. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Strive to be content. So be thankful to God for your lot in life. It's the lot that God has given you and there's a purpose for it and there's meaning in it. So be thankful for the lot God's given you, for the path on which he's called you to walk. It's not the same as others and that's okay. He's called you to walk along this path. Be grateful for the place that he's planted you. Sure, it's not the beautiful flowing rivers of the eastern states but you don't have to deal with floods then just be content with where, with where God's placed you and be appreciative for the people he's put around you sure we're a little strange we're a little messed up but God has placed you around these people in your life and that's where the preacher heads now verse 9 Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's a passage which we often hear quoted at weddings, but... 
really it's not primarily about married life at all. It's really a passage that points to the value of Christian community and godly fellowship and the body of Christ. None of us are saved into isolation and independence. God has deliberately saved us into the body of Christ, into his family. We're a group of motley believers still found right in the middle of our own sanctification, still very capable of rubbing each other up the wrong way, still capable of giving offence and being misunderstood. But we are a redeemed community and each of us is being changed from one degree of glory to another. Little by little, every day, we are being conformed to the beautiful image of Christ. So don't give up on one another. Don't neglect Christian fellowship and the cultivation of friendships. Two are better than one, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We're made for that. After all, we're made, each one of us, in the image of a triune God. One God, three persons in perfect unity. In closing... I came across this excellent summary from theologian Jason DeRussi. He suggests that the message of the book of Ecclesiastes is a call to turn from striving against God's providence toward trusting the God who is in control and who is both willing and able to help all who fear him. This is the goal of Ecclesiastes, that believers... Feeling the weight of the curse and the burden of life's enigmas would turn their eyes towards God, resting in his purposes and delighting whenever possible in his beautiful, disfigured world. In this alone will one find lasting gain unto eternity. And so God's providence for you, God's plan for you, God's purpose for you is designed not only to provide you with peace in knowing God's sovereign power and wisdom and goodness, but his providence, his plan and his purpose for you are also designed to provide you with perplexity and humility and mess so that you might be forced to reach the end of yourself and the glorious beginning of your eternal saviour. God loves you so much that he will do whatever is necessary in order to set you free from your bondage to you so that you might find and know and delight in the extraordinary and eternal treasure of Jesus Christ. And may it be so for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some of us come today and we know exactly what the scripture is talking about when it talks about a mess of confusion, a mess of doubt and despair, agonizing. Father, maybe even some of us are on the edge just questioning how can a God of love allow this in my life? Father, the the answer lies in Jesus Christ. The answer lies in how you saw our predicament and our despair 
and you stopped at nothing, even the sending of your own son to die in our place so that every moment could be covered by your blood and redeemed and given meaning and purpose so that one day you will bring us to yourself and we will see the glorious beauty of the tapestry that you have created in every moment of our life. Father, I pray you would be close to the brokenhearted, the despairing. Come to us, Father. Be our all in all today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.